Oh, you said the. Hi, everybody. I'm going to start on time, even a couple minutes early, because I've got to go through the accreditation information, and that'll leave more time for Dr. Shoba. So bear with me while I go go through all of this. Um, so. I think I know most of you here. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Really happy to see so many of you here and a truly interprofessional audience. We have some pharmacists, pharmacy students, in addition to nurses. And I know there's going to be a, there will be a few folks um, joining us as well. Um, so before we begin, begin um, be sure if you need CE credit that you sign the attendance sheet over here so that we have a record of your being here. If you're watching remotely, and we know there are some of you who are, hi to everybody back in our office in continuing education who we know uh, are watching us. Um, you must contact Judy Langhans, and that's Judith.m as in Mary dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at the conclusion of the program so that she can record your attendance. Um, and also, if our remote learners do have a question or comment you um, have during the uh, uh, presentation, you can send that information to Judy and she will relay your comments or questions to our speaker. All of our evaluation forms will be sent to you electronically soon after the end of the program and you must be present for 80% of the program in order to receive your credit. Um, and we do appreciate your feedback, so uh, please be candid with us in your responses. Your contact hours will appear on your electronic transcript in two to three weeks. Uh, we want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee for today's program has reported a relationship with a commercial entity and no one refused to disclose. Um, if you could please silence your phones and pages out of respect for our speaker. Um, and that's the end of the accreditation stuff. So at this point, I would really um, like to present our guest speaker. I'm thrilled to introduce him to you. Dr. Chip Shoba is the Vice President for Health Affairs and Dean of the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, where he also holds a faculty appointment as Professor in the Department of Surgery and as Professor of Business Administration at Tuck. He's an expert in many areas, including the topic we're here to talk about today, the science of leadership. He's been teaching leadership for over 10 years, has over 40 published articles on leadership in peer-reviewed journals, and dozens of national presentations on the topic. Here at Dartmouth, Dr. Shoba is in the process of planning an interactive four-day workshop that is designed to develop participants in their individual leadership ability. This July, we will be offering the third annual workshop on leadership. Our, current, uh, our largest cohort thus far is scheduled for this July, and I think we're about 20 people over the number of folks we had participate uh, last year. So many of our registrants are nurses and others, um, and actually some of our former uh, graduates are in the room today as I look at Buffy and Joan. Um, so we're thrilled about that. Um, and I can assure you as a graduate of last year's cohort, the, the program really is life-changing. So um, I want to acknowledge the efforts that CHIP makes toward interprofessional engagement and collaboration. He does support the concept of team effort and promotes the belief that all voices of a team are not only important, but crucial to the success of the final outcomes of the work. I believe you will begin to have a different view of leadership at the conclusion of his presentation today. So finally, Chip is authentic in his interactions with all people, especially nurses. 
Uh, he's well acquainted with nurses' work, having practiced for many years as a surgeon working at the point of care. And although he's not a nurse, unfortunately, I can say he's married to a nurse, so that's <laughs> practically as good. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Shoba as he discusses the science and practice of leading himself. So thanks very much. It's, uh, it's always fun to come to groups like this. And how many of you are signed up for this summer's course? Do we have anybody? I know there's some. One there. Raise your hand high. And Buffy and Joan took it last year. Anyway, we encourage you to, uh, to sign up. So this is a, probably a feeble attempt to cover in 40 minutes what we do in, in five days. And I'm just going to hit some highlights and try to make it as practical as possible. Maybe we'll whet your appetite and you'll have a, uh, the urge to uh, take the summer course. So my area of <clears throat> scholarship uh, today is this whole notion of uh, leading yourself, and there's a science behind it, um, and uh, you know we don't have all the science figured out, but and it's an interesting science. There's certainly neuroscience, but there's also communication science, philosophy, linguistics, um, psychology, and uh, you know in my spare time this is what I do. I would like to have much more time to do this, but I've got these other uh, obligations, um, and the the notion here is that. You know, why should you take leading yourself seriously? Because most people think about leading out here, leading the nursing team, leading the unit, leading whatever group of people they are responsible for. We're completely in favor of that, but we believe it starts with, with leading yourself. And um, the, the underlying premise here is that the only person you have direct access to is yourself. Now, you've got indirect access to a database or to the internet or to the bank. But the only, only entity you have direct access to or what we call first-person access is yourself. And that's going to be critically uh, important uh, going forward. So, you know, if I were to say to you, you know, Buffy, what, what does it mean to be a kidney? You have no direct access to that. You have third-person access. In other words, you can go study the kidney and say, you know, what it means to be a kidney is to be shaped like a bean, to sit in the retroperitoneum, and to make urine. But you really have no direct or first-person access to that. But you do to yourself by virtue of the fact that you're human. We're going to capitalize on that. Again, leading yourself is a prerequisite for leading others. I don't think you can effectively lead out here unless you're pretty square in here. Um, and if you just check out your own life, you know, what you'll discover fairly promptly is, you know, you don't live your life from a theoretical standpoint. You know, you don't, you know, when you interact with people, you rarely sort of jog up your favorite nursing textbook or article and say, this is the way I'm going to interact. You just interact naturally in the first person as lived in your own experience. Um, so third person approaches to studying leadership don't give you direct access. You know, you can memorize all the books in the world and read this article or that article, um, but it will not give you direct access. So we're, we're going to talk about hey, how might I get some direct access to this thing called 
called uh, leadership. And from a practical standpoint, uh, what many of you have discovered, given all of the changes that are going on um, in healthcare, in the world really, is that the you that has showed up at work in the past, a different you is going to have to show up, if for no other reason, to be happy. But you also find that if this different you shows up, you'll be more effective. And both of those are, I think, good things. So the metaphor here is the that I want to just use is the high jump. And um, um, creating a new future means reinventing yourself. Now, you know, when we talk about reinventing yourself, it, it doesn't mean that your physical appearance or, is going to change or that you're going to be this totally different person. What it, what it will mean is that the way in which things show up for you or occur for you will change. The way in which people will experience you will change. And the way you experience yourself will change. But you're going to be the same person who wears pretty much the same clothes and drives the same uh, car. So I'm a sports metaphor guy. I uh, apologize for that. But this looks at the history of the high jump um, in the Olympics. And, you know, for, I mean, this, this um, sport in the Olympics has been around for since the inception back with the Greeks and the Romans. So... Um, all the way up until the 1900s, people uh, used what's called the scissors kick. And the idea here is you run up and jump over a bar. And for 2,000 years, they would just run up and jump over a bar. And then in the 1920s, somebody said, hey, if you run up and sort of roll over the bar, you can get a little higher. That was called the Western roll. And then in the 1940s, somebody said, you know, if you not just run up and roll over, but you kind of go over head first, you can get even higher. And, you know, the best you could do with the straddle was maybe seven feet. That's a lot. But people that were winning the gold medal, that's what they were, they were getting. It really wasn't until 1968 that Dick Fosbury said he completely changed the paradigm. He said, what if you go over backwards? No one had ever even considered that. And what the physics of the jumping shows is that if you go over backwards, you shift your center of gravity. And the best people now are routinely jumping, you know, eight feet, which is about that high. That, that's almost unbelievable to imagine. Um, and the, the, the teaching point here is that Every system, which includes the hum human operating system, is designed or built exactly to get the results it gets. You know, if if a hospital has problems with uh, with uh, patient safety, it's because the system is designed to allow that to happen. If there are problems with uh, quality, the system is designed to allow that to to um, to happen. And uh, and and every system has a design limit. So, you know, you can tweak here and there, you can, you know, make incremental changes. But uh, I think where we are in healthcare is that uh, incremental change isn't going to get us where we need to go. We, we need uh, to ask 
what's our Fosbury plot that's going to get us to the next uh, to the next level? And this notion of reinvention and performance, which I call mastery, it, they're very tightly linked. Um, and mastery is one of the places you want to get to if you think about it in your life, whether you're a downhill skier or a nurse or a pharmacist, mastery would be a really good place um, uh, to get. So just as a point up front, uh, effective leadership doesn't have anything to do with a personality. And, and, uh, and that, that's good news because it's very difficult for people to change their personality. You've got, you've got this sort of temperament personality that some of you are you know, more introvert than others. And if you're an introvert uh, or an extrovert, you try to be the opposite. It, it is just difficult to, I'm actually an introvert by nature, but I've learned to be an extrovert under certain circumstances. But, you know, I've known people who are very uncharismatic and are great leaders. I've known people who are, you know, cheerleaders, but ineffective leaders. So, um, you know, and you can take this Myers-Briggs test. I'm sure many of you have taken it. None of those categories are, you know, uh, preclude you from being an effective leader. So, you know, the point. I think the point here is, you know, be who you are. Don't try to be somebody else uh, when you're leading. So, one of the things that our group and Deb is on the planning committee of our of our group. Uh, one of the concepts that we're putting forward is is uh, we want to flip the prevailing model of leadership you know completely you know this is a paradigm shift and so you know people struggle with it right and the prevailing model that uh of leadership and this is taught in all the business schools around the country says that the foundation of leadership is what you know and if you want to become a better leader go no more stuff. Take a course, get a degree, read an article, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and that knowing is the foundation for, for doing. And at the end of the day, leadership has to be about action. And that the foundation for that action is, is what, you, what you know. Um, the sort of Cartesian foundation of this is this, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And uh, we disagree with this. We think knowing is critical. We think knowing is absolutely essential to being a good practitioner. But the model that we're um, introducing is one that's, that's called uh, the ontological phenomenological model. Again, <coughs> Epistemology is the study of knowing on the left, and ontology is the study of being. And we think that at the foundation of everything is being a leader, not what the what the leader what the leader knows is important. But our whole approach has been to say this starts with being a leader. What does it mean to be a leader? And uh, I'll give you an example of you know, uh, how we came to that sort of thinking. So, you know, if I were to ask any of you, what is a hospital? 
you know, you, you would say it would vary, but it would you'd say something like it's a it's a place or a, maybe even a building where professionals, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, and other specialists work to provide procedures and therapies to patients. Something like that, right? Now, uh, and you know, that set of characteristics would tell me what a hospital is. But then if I asked you another question and I said, what does it mean to be a patient in a hospital? We get things like, well, to be a patient in a hospital is to be cared for, informed, maybe frightened, maybe vulnerable, uh, maybe not communicated with. Um, to be to be a patient in the hospital is to be the recipient of a bad meal. You know, whatever your sort of set of criteria is. Now, if I then asked you. Which of those two questions comes first? Which is more primal? What is a hospital? Or what does it mean to be a patient in the hospital? After you know, some thought, you would, you would figure out that the more fundamental question is, what does it mean to be a patient in the hospital? Because if we can get clear with one another what it means to be a patient in the hospital, that will inform us how to design a hospital, right? how to make a hospital. And of course, this is one of the big things that healthcare is going through right now is what it means to be a patient is changing. What it means to be a patient today is to be much more of an outpatient than in the past. And so the way that we <coughs> design inpatient units, the way that we uh, design surgery centers and all that kind of, that's fairly new on the, on the horizon of, of, uh, of healthcare. Same thing with leadership. Rather than saying, what is a leader? Because if I were to say, what is a leader? I've done this, you get lots of different answers, but a fairly common answer is a leader is a person in charge who wields clout, allocates resources, and has answers. Something like that. But if you were then to ask the more fundamental question, what does it mean to be a leader? Not what is a leader, but what does it mean to be a leader? Then you start getting um, responses like to be a leader is to be fair, to be thoughtful, to be forward thinking, to be honest, to be authentic, to be committed. And uh, what, using the hospital analogy, it if you and I can get clear on what it is to be a leader, that will inform and shape the way we prepare people for leadership, the way we educate them. And uh, so that's what has sort of driven this. Let's start with being a leader. The knowledge then sort of serves as a big spotlight up here that illuminates and everything you know. I'm a big believer in theory and reading and do that a lot, but that then sort of enlightens and informs the situation. And this model says that you are before you think. And people that uh, study this full time are, are pretty clear now that ontology comes before epistemology. If you 
are before you know you are. Okay, with that, I'm going to tell you a brief story. Uh, when I was, this was 22 years ago when I was a junior faculty member at the Shams Hospital at the University of Florida. This is my sporting part coming out again. Uh, Ted Williams, the baseball player, was a patient in our hospital. And uh, as a boy, and he was a hero of mine, he looked a little bit like my dad, so uh, that was probably part of it too. Um, but I, when he was admitted to our hospital, he, he was not my patient, but I just had this meet the guy. You know, it was one of those things you might want to meet. Miley Cyrus. I don't know, maybe not. But uh, um, so the 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 nurse practitioner involved in his care was had been my student. So I managed to get in and uh, and uh, spend an hour with him. He was three or four days out from surgery and was basically going home the next day. So he was with it, lucid, and he didn't have anything better to do than talk to me. So we spent an hour together, quite frankly. And one of the things that I asked him was. You know, how do you hit a baseball that's coming at you 100 miles an hour? I don't know if any of you have tried that, but it's not easy. I've gotten in a batting cage at 75 miles an hour, and, and, and it's almost impossible for me. I don't have the equipment, but, but he was routinely, you know, arguably the best hitter to ever played the game. He was routinely uh, hitting balls that were coming at 100 miles an hour, and I said, how do you do it? You know, thinking that he was going to give me some algorithm, some you know secrets. All right, I'm going to show you how to do it. I haven't showed anybody else, but here's how you <laughs> here's how you stand in the batter's box. Here's how you hold your, the bat, bend your hips, and so on and so forth. And uh, and I was disappointed with his answer. This was 22 years ago. Um, since then, I've been delighted with his answer, but back then I didn't. I didn't make the distinction that I made more recently. And, and what he said to me was, I don't know. The ball just shows up as hittable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that didn't help me. Uh, uh, I then, over the years, um, went back and, and read uh, his books. He wrote a book called The Science of Hitting, which was an article in Sports Illustrated where he, uh, and I just reread that, where he talks about, you know, the way he approached hitting. He, he, uh, he broke the, he broke the strike, the, um, he broke the strike zone up here into 77 little strike zones, and he measured his performance in each one, and he uh, probably took, uh, well, he did take tens of thousands of hours of batting practice where he would have somebody pitch to him and he, he would just hit and hit and hit. And what became apparent in that conversation was that the way that he became a better and better hitter was through practice, but specifically a part of the practice which is not always articulated was he was essentially having a conversation with the baseball over the course of the 300 milliseconds that it left the pitcher's hand and crossed the plate. What was its velocity? What was its movement? Was there a curve to the ball? What was its spin? You know, did it change when there was high humidity? 
Um, and uh, that, that became of great interest to me and uh, went back and started reading all about language in the brain. This was maybe 10 years ago. And, uh, and the question that, that I, the light bulb question was, how do we access our really complicated challenges in healthcare in such a way that they show up for us as hittable? Not just a baseball, but life in general. You guys are dealing with all sorts of stuff here. What if everything we dealt with showed up as hittable? Like, yeah, I can, I can deal with this. I can handle this, no matter how daunting it may seem. And that that became a, a very powerful question for me because, you know, I sort of came to the conclusion that no matter what we're dealing with here at Dartmouth and in the medical center, you know, decreasing room reimbursement, all the stuff we're dealing with, if we if it showed up for us as hittable, that would be a hell of a lot better than if it showed up for us as unhittable. Because he struck out, no question. But every single pitch showed up for him as hittable. Um, and that was part of his uh, his, uh, his success. So it, it, it raises this question of what is it that determines your performance as a leader or just your performance in life in general? And the, the prevailing thinking is what determines your performance is some function of what you know sort of like your knowledge or your expertise or, but look, you guys have known people who know a ton. They know a lot, but they're totally ineffective in dealing with people or exercising leadership. The new model, the emerging model says, the leader's performance is first and foremost a function of the way in which whatever they're dealing with shows up for them. So, you know, if you're dealing with a pitch, and you can get it to show up as hittable, not that you're going to swing at one that's 10 feet outside, but you know if you, if you can get it to show up as hittable, your effectiveness is going to be vastly better. And so it begs this other question of, how do I alter the way, in, uh, the, way the circumstances I'm dealing with occur for me, particularly when I have no say about them? So the, basic, the, uh, the research faculty here they're dealing with a, re a funding level from the NIH and the other funding agencies that's the worst it's ever been. You know, it used to be that if you plugged away, you could probably get funded 20% of the time, and it's now like 7%. So it shows up for some of them as impossible. Like, why should I even write a grant? Why should I spend 100 hours writing a grant? I know it's going to, I know I'm going to get the shaft. So how do you get that to show up differently for them so that despite the circumstances, yes, 7% chance, you can still bring your A game to the table and write the best grant you ever wrote? How do, how do, you, how do you do that? And that's impossible without direct access. We'll, I'm not sure we'll get a lot more into that today in the, because of time, but what I want to leave you with here is the way in which Anything, your children, your in-laws, your problem, your golf shot, you know, 
the way in which anything occurs for you is always a matter of context. It's always a matter of perspective. Or what you see depends on where you stand. So, you know, you have this person over here who's sort of saying, this is a big problem. You have this person over here who sees it completely different, says this is a big opportunity. How do we turn our problems into opportunities? That's the language of leadership part of it. So this notion of creating a new context, you know, one useful tool. And Deb can coach you on this, but she's been through it quite a bit. Is is you want to when whatever you're dealing with, you want to separate the facts from the narrative. This is one that resonates with me a lot. So um, whatever set of circumstances you're dealing with, you know, too many people call in sick. The units over flowing with patients that require more care than usual. You got 37 million orders in the pharmacy that you got to fill by four o'clock. You know, whatever you're dealing with, there's always a set of facts, what happened, that surround the challenge, and there's always a narrative or a story that goes along with it, right? So the sort of what happened, the facts are, you know, what happened? When did it happen? Who did it? Who didn't do it? Sort of observable events that people agree on. And then the narrative are all the stories and interpretations and opinions that you know you conjure up out of that, right? So somebody walks into a meeting 10 minutes late. There's one fact. The person walked in 10 minutes late. But the narrative is, he doesn't care, you know, he's always late. And that gets you into trouble because we tend as human beings to conflate the what happened with the story, and there's a lot of drama there sometimes, right? Such that the story or the narrative becomes the facts, and then those things fully complete conflate and the story becomes the truth. So <clears throat> institution reduces your benefits. That's a fact. At least with the docs. The story is they don't know what they're doing. They don't care. They're a bunch of idiots up on the fifth floor. Conflate that becomes the truth. So um, one of the things that I know, uh, you know, I know Buffy and others are working on is is this notion: of how do you build a really strong container that holds people together? Because look, think that the heat and the pressure cooker is up. I mean, it, it's it's up. And on the one side, you've got uh, apathy, which is not a good thing, and on the other side, you've got frank hostility, which is not not a good thing. There is this middle part of the conflict continuum, which which is very healthy. And uh, you know, just Buffy was just telling me before we got started how uh, the team, I'm sure I heard you right, is starting to manage conflict better. She's no longer the wicked witch all the time. Um, and so uh, the only way to do this is to practice. And so when you talk about a, a working container, uh, it's a metaphor. It, it doesn't refer to the covalent bonds in a, in a cast iron pot. 
it refers to the human bonds that hold people together, right? Trust, open communication, and commitment. So you want to you want to build those things, and recognize that you know some people do better with that than others. You know, some people with fairly low levels of heat and pressure get upset. <coughs> Just recognize that and try to manage it. The other uh, another point I think in building the team that you're trying to build is, is to recognize that there is this conversational domain of blame and excuse that is the bane of our existence, right? So one way to look at uh, uh, organizations like this one is, is uh, it's not really a bunch of buildings. Yeah, they're buildings. It's not really a, a, a strategic plan. There is a strategic plan. It's not um, a bunch of balance sheets. There is a balance sheet. But if you think about any organization, it's really nothing more than a network of conversations. Hundreds of different conversations that are going on at one time, some of which are constructive, some of which are not constructive. And one of the more constructive, one of the more destructive conversations is when people get wrapped up in blame, complaints, and excuses. And you just check it out in your own life. If you're upset about something, um, and it's, it's normal to get upset, uh, you want to get yourself to a point where you complete the conversational domain of blame and excuse. Have it with yourself, have it with your good friends, and then complete it. Because what you'll find is if you don't complete that conversational <coughs> domain of blame and excuse, it's going to be really difficult for you to take responsibility for the future, because all your energy is going to be going into the blaming and the, excuse, and the excuses, and you want to put the energy into, into creating a, uh, a better future. So I'll just finish with this. This is what we call the house of leadership. Um, you know, I find metaphors are useful for people, and so the reason we use the house metaphor is because when you're going to when you're going to build a house, you always start with a foundation. Without a foundation, the house will fall down. Um, and uh, the foundation is the being of leadership. The framework is the acting of leadership or the exercise of leadership or the doing of leadership. We're, we're not going to talk about the framework today because we just don't have enough time. But on the being side of the house, we, we believe there are four pillars of being that will serve you well no matter what. No matter what you're dealing with, no, no matter how nasty people are being to you, no matter how terrible things seem, if you can you know, get centered around awareness, integrity, authenticity, and commitment, it'll always work to your, it, it to your favor. Now, people say, well, aren't there some other things like courage? Isn't that a pillar? And what we would say is there are times when being courageous is uh, is a very good way of being, but there may be times when being cautious might, might be good. But these four, no matter what, they're always going to work to your advantage. And, you know, in some sense, if you're not being a leader, it's impossible to act like a leader. That you know, is another way of sort of coming at this notion that ontology comes before epistemology. So I just want to walk you through these, then we'll have some questions. So this notion of awareness, you know, it, it 
yes, it includes my awareness that Deb is sitting over here, but it's more being aware of what we call you're already always listening. Now, if you just pay attention, you'll discover that you've got this voice. We don't know where it sits. You know, there's no voice box in your brain. We've done enough autopsies that there is no, there is no phonograph, there is no stereo, there is no Walkman up in your head. But it's probably generated by your neural networks, and we call it different things. We call it your chatterbox, your already always listening, your inner voice, your inner critic, your inner commentary. We like the term already always listening because it's always there and it's already there. And uh, you, most people, if you just sort of get centered and quiet, you, you know, there's a constant chatter that's going on, uh, and it's universal. It's universal. It, you know, it probably does not occur in very, very, very young babies, um, and it's not bad. I mean, this sort of inner chatter has been shown to be helpful in problem solving and. Um, um, mathematical calculations, but there's a part of it that can be really disruptive, and this is the the part that um, you know just that is sort of critical and judgmental. And for me, and I just talked to enough people, I find this to be maybe not across the board, but close. The, the nature of the voice tends to be critical about yourself or other people. I'm not good enough, or he's a toad, or you know she doesn't care about showing up at the meeting. It's, 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 so you want to get aware of that. You can't get rid of it, but in getting aware of it, it'll it'll its grip on you will be relaxed. Just just try it, um, um, and it you know it looks a little bit like this. You want to be aware of it. And you want to beware of it. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, this is very, you know, I'll look dumb if I ask that question. This is inner, inner talk. You know. um, and just being mindful of the fact that there is this already always listening that is going on. And if you aren't present to it or if you don't get aware of it, it is going to run your life in, in general in a not so effective way. So that's awareness. We spend a lot more time on this in the summer course, but authenticity is the second, and there's a couple parts to authenticity. One of the, one of the parts of authenticity is it has to do with being the sort of responsible or accountable author for your actions and, and behaviors, right? You know, it's also being consistent with who you hold yourself out to be. You know? So if, if you tell people that you're a team player and then you occur for them as just being about yourself, that's not very authentic. So I, you know, I will on occasion walk in with my, the people I spend most of my time with in a meeting and I say, and I'll tell them right up front, A, to be authentic and to be, you know, to disclose, but B, so that they, is almost as little teaching us, and I'll say, look, uh, I may show up today as a bit distracted because I've got a lot of crap going on. And I just want to be straight with you about that right up front. Now, this is a young man named Anthony Robles, who, uh, who in 2010-11 won the college 
national wrestling championship at age 100 and, at 125 pounds. I think Anthony's probably 24 now. And, um, you know, there are people that win the national champion. You see, he's the best in the country at, in college at his, at his weight, weight group and have to go through this big contest to get there. So there's a lot of people that win this in every weight class, you know, one a year in all 10 weight classes. The thing that about Anthony that is unique is that he was born without a right leg. No leg, no buttock, and no hip on that side. And, uh, you know, he could have sort of, um, <coughs> you know, sort of gone into the poor me mode. Say, well, you know, I, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to be born without a leg. I didn't ask for health care reform to happen. Um, but he did. You know, he said, you know, this is what I'm dealing with, and I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to be cause in the matter is the language we use, right? So, you know, all of you guys as leaders, there's a bunch of stuff that you didn't cause, most of it. It's not your fault. But you got to deal with it. That's part of being a leader. You've got to be responsible for creating a different future. And his sort of response was, I'm born without a leg, so what? Still going to win the national championship. And he didn't let that sort of get in his way. Integrity is, uh, this is one people resonate with a lot. It's this notion that uh, while you and I generally think of integrity as having to do with honesty and character, and I couldn't agree more, it's Latin origin is from the word integritus, which means whole or complete, like an integer is a whole number. And it, as it relates to people and groups and pharmacy teams and nursing teams and student teams and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's about keeping your word whole and complete in integrity, right? Because if something's out of integrity, like your front wheels on your car are not aligned, it's not going to work as well. So out of integrity impairs workability. Same thing applies in organizations. So what we mean by integrity is that you will do everything you can to keep your word. So when you give your word, we consider that to be a big deal. I mean, most people, yeah, I'll get that to you. If they get to it, fine. If they don't get to it, fine. That's, that's not what we mean by integrity. Um, uh, and nobody can keep their word all the time. Some stuff happens, and you have to break your word. Like, you know, I may say to Deb, you know, I'll get you that book by 5 o'clock today, and then I'm on a, I'm in a car accident on the way home, and, you know, I can't get her the book by 5 o'clock. That happens to us all, all the time. Then my responsibility, since I have to break my words, to honor it get a hold of Deb or ask the paramedic to get a hold of Deb or, <laughs> you know, ask the ambulance driver, you know, text her, call her and say, hey, Deb, I can't, you know, I'm in the middle of CPR, but I cannot get you. <laughs> That's an extreme case. But I want to get a hold of her and say, look, I have to break my word, but I want to honor it. I will get you the book by tomorrow at noon. If organizations were to honor or practice these relatively simple things about keeping your word, and when you can't keep it, honor it. The data, it's anecdotal, suggests performance would go up 300%. Not 10%, but 300%. It's just 
So the next time you have a meeting, you know, you guys chair meetings all the time, leave five minutes at the end just to get clear with the group who's going to do what, who who's going to, what's the deliverable, to whom, by when. And then after a while, you know, um, it'll keep become part of the part of the culture, very powerful. Just going to finish with commitment, and then one other Ted Williams story. So this notion of commitment is critical. You you have to be. By nature, you're committed to something. You know, that's part of just the human construct. Now, it, it may be committed to doing as little work as possible, and, and, but that's still a commitment. Um, but what you want to discover for yourself, it's not particularly difficult for people in healthcare to discover this. It's more difficult for people who, who sell refrigerators. But what you want to discover for you, I, this is the direct access. You have to discover it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But you want to discover for yourself by having a conversation with yourself, you know, looking at that baseball, looking at that patient, you know, in, you know having that inner talk, self-talk, you know, that always is going on. you got to discover for yourself that unless you're committed to a future bigger than you are, it won't work. It might work for 10 years like it did with me. The only future I was committed to for many, many years was my own CV. And damn, I was committed. That son of a gun grew like a weed. But it wasn't fulfilling, and it wasn't sustainable. And I got clear that you know just publishing basic science papers to make my CV heavier, that was no bigger than me. The stuff I do now, I think, is bigger than me, and it's much more fulfilling, right? So you've got to, on a regular basis, have a conversation with yourself. What do you care about deeply, and what's really important to you? You've got to ask those two questions all the time. What do I really care about? What's really important to me? And you'll discover that when you get when you're honest with yourself, it's always about something bigger than you, you know, other people, students, patients, that sort of thing. So that's that's what's commitment. And I like this last bullet. I'll just read it. There's a small. There's only a small difference between committed people. Everybody's committed, most everybody. But that small difference makes a big difference. The small difference is their stand for the future. The big difference is whether or not that stand for the future is bigger than they are. And you know you can figure it out really quickly. Um, and you know, like I said, most of most everybody I work with, there you guys are committed to a future bigger than yourself. You wouldn't be here. So I'll just finish with uh, one last Ted Williams story. Uh, so in addition to asking him how he how he hit a baseball, for which I got an unsatisfactory answer until it, it dawned on me that well, that's the way masters work. Life just shows up for them as hittable, you know. Whether they're hitting a baseball or taking care of a patient or dealing with a grieving family, it just shows up as hittable. That doesn't mean you're not sad in the moment. Um, but the other thing I asked him was about the 1941 season. That's a long time ago. When he hit 406, and uh, 
and I wanted I just wanted him to tell me the story. You can read it in the textbooks, you you know, in, in the in the uh, sports archives and all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to hear it from him just because I like hearing that kind of stuff. And so I'm going to tell you the story the way he told it to me because I basically memorized it. <laughs> so it was it was uh, September 28, 1941, and it was the last two games of the season, and he was a Red Sox. Um, and the Red Sox, they, the Yankees had cinched the pennant three weeks ago. So these guys were going home. They had two games to play, then you're home, you don't come back until spring training. And he's batting at the time 3996. Um, and in all the sports record books, they round things up to three places. So 3996 would become 400. Um, and his, his manager, a guy named Joe Cronin, who was 38 and was the shortstop, because back then the coaches played. Joe Cronin goes to him and says, Ted, why don't you sit these two games out? This was a, this, They were playing in Philadelphia against the old Philadelphia Athletics, who have now moved to Oakland, California, right? Those of you who follow baseball may remember that. And he says, sit these two games out. Your average will be rounded up to 400. No one's going to hit 400 for 10 years, and uh, you'll you'll preserve uh, you'll preserve that. And uh, you know it's not like we have a shot at going to the playoffs. You know it's not like there's a lot of people in the stands. You know just you know don't take any risks. And and, uh, and Ted Williams looks at me, sort of like I was croning it, and he said, said I said Joe, baseball is who I am. And he played those two games, <clears throat> went six for eight, six hits out of eight with one walk, raises the average of 406. Nobody has hit 400 since, right? So it's not 10 years, it's almost 80 years. And, you know, and it was because the ball showed up for, is hittable for him. And if you think about it, when you're in the middle of your mastery, whether it's Whatever you do, most of the time, when he when he was at the plate, he was not a hitter so much as he was a hit king. Now you discover this for yourself. Those of you who take do direct patient care, when you're in the moment taking care of somebody, you you'll be able to discover that in the moment you're not so much a nurse as you are a nursing. A caring, um, and I just you know he, he, you know he he was he was just a hitting that was his thing. So the uh, you know just to summarize the source of your performance is not first and foremost what you know. Does what you know matter? Absolutely, but it's not the most important thing in de in determining your performance. The most important thing in determining your performance is whether it shows up for you as hittable and the way of being and acting that comes out of it, right? Because if something shows up as hittable, your way of being and acting is going to be a lot better than if it shows up as unhittable, right? And we didn't spend much time on this. We will do it in the summer course a lot. Because you have language. You see, other animals don't have language. Or they, they have a little bit of language. But we have sophisticated language. Because we have language, you always have some say over how you listen to whatever you're dealing with and how you be with it. You've got 
sailed it. Now you got baggage like I do and crap yapping around saying, oh, you're going to fail if you do that. But you have complete sailed with that. And because of that, you have this choice of whether life is going to show up hittable and this choice about how you're going to show up every day at work. It impacts both your effectiveness, but equally importantly, it impacts just the day-to-day sort of well-being and joy that you kind of live with. So, thank you, Deb. I think I'll stop. We can have a few questions, but uh, thank you so much for your attention. Life shows up as pitiful. Is that, would you say, equates with that can do attitude that I can take things in yep. and I, whatever it is, I'll yep. figure out a way to manage it? That's good. And it's not to say you're not going to strike out in life. Exactly. But right? you, you approach it. Yeah. I can attack it. That, see, can that's, what, that's a great point. What makes people, we say, what makes leaders exceptional. They don't have some special set of genes or some special suite of neurons in their brain that makes them effective. They, we all have that. It's just that they have learned, taught themselves, and this is what we try to do in the course, they've mastered a certain language. It's English. It's not, don't worry. I mean, it, there is a parallel language in Swahili and Japanese. But it's English. There's a there's a language that they have mastered, and I just threw a few terms at you today. Already, always listening. They've mastered that, and they get yeah. I get that. It's yapping away, right? And they, by being aware of it, it 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 the handcuffs are not so tight. So. Um, and, and because they've mastered that language, and that's, Deb can tell you that the whole course is predicated on exposing you to this new language that will use you in such a way that you're more powerful and more effective in life. Um, it, and it's not that your problems go away. Life is going to continually have problems, but they won't show up for you as problems. They'll just show up for you as stuff to deal with. That's well said the way you said that. Yeah. Other questions? Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how in the workshop you'll be addressing authenticity and what you quickly, what training. Authenticity? Authenticity. Yeah, so we walked through this and, you know, expanded. And then, uh, by the way, half the workshop is, uh, is breakout time where you are in small groups and uh, what I've heard from people for the past 10 years and particularly from these two that's a, that's a very powerful part of it because you know you, there's a level of intimacy that grows over the four days and you want right you, you learn from one, one another but the here, here's the thing about authenticity um, it's not just one thing but what you need, the way to start with authenticity is to acknowledge, here's what we say, authenticity begins with acknowledging your inauthenticity, because we're all inauthentic, period. You know, it's just part of being human, and it, it may be the not-so-authentic comment about 
I like your hair. That's a nice tie. You know, it's that. And then, you know, it also, we didn't talk about this today, it, it, probably one of the biggest ways we're inauthentic is we conform. We go with the crowd. So we, we get into all of that. And we, you know, we, uh, we want to leave you with a language of authenticity, like causing the matter, is one a term that we introduce. So there's, we, we, it's about thirty terms. We just gave you two. Causing the matter, hittable could be a term. Already, always listening, and we we don't use those terms to be cute. Um, they're called distinctions, and some of them are from other people. Some of them are my own. But we, we use that particular language because what we've discovered is that that opens stuff up for people. So the, the purpose of the course is not to leave you more knowledgeable. The purpose of the course is to open up a whole new world for you. And who can open up the world for you? <clears throat> Only you. I may say something that triggers something. Like you may say, oh, already, always listening. Yeah, I can kind of get it. It's already there. It's always there. It, it's, it's there in my dreams. It's there when I wake up. It was there before I was born. It's always there. It's already there. That, that, that way of saying it has given people an opening to discovering it. You've probably known some. <laughs> My question is, can, can that person become a good leader? Um, the, the answer is yes, if they're willing to get into this. Mm -hmm. um, um, but our experience is that it's much more difficult to teach leadership skills than it is to teach technical skills. Mm -hmm. That's our experience. I suspect that's. But I've known people uh, who have just been, you know, brutally nasty people and ineffective who have been willing, maybe myself to some extent. I don't know that I was brutally nasty, but I was living a life for a long time that wasn't working as well as I wanted it to work. And, you know, my wife would tell you I'm a different person. Now, I'm not a different, I mean, I'm more balding than I was 10 years ago. <laughs> I put on a couple of pounds. Uh, I can't run as fast. But what's different is, is the way in which life shows up for me has changed. And my big struggle right now is, you know, I want more time to work on this full time. Because this, you know, you, you talk about what do you really care about and what's really important to you. This is what it is. But I understand that would be giving up some titles and, and that that you can get attached to. But you know, uh, because I think that this kind of stuff. We're not going to transform the healthcare system 
until this stuff gets embedded in it. Or if we do, it'll be bloody and kicking and screaming and, and you know, yeah, we'll probably get there. But it'll be a, it'll be a war. And uh, so you want to give people these, you could say, tools, this methodology, this way of approaching life. You know, I, I, it worked for me. I guess that's why I believe it. It doesn't work for everybody, but the course, the courses in 90% of the people who take the course year after year after year after year after year say, this had a really big impact on my life. And if you get a group of you like this, you see that do it, then you've got some staying power in the organization. You've got one another to talk to. You've got, then you can hopefully get to a critical mass and a tipping point and then Dartmouth-Hitchcock is positioned to, I mean, you'll, you'll just be the most dynamite place and everybody will come and say, how did you do this? And, it, you know, I, that's good. That, that's nice because you can have bragging rights and that sort of stuff. But most importantly is you're, you're working together to provide higher value to the people we serve, right? The patients and the students and the, that sort of thing. In the back. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. This is uh, very provocative and very compelling, and I appreciate your example for Ted Williams. Uh, I was born and raised in a baseball country in the Dominican Republic, so I very much appreciate hearing uh, your stories. I have two questions. One is, um, when you're talking about a hittable moment, um, I'm hearing that, and, and also you describe that it's a matter of perspective uh, from where you stand. Is some of your work also looking at intuitive capacity for that person that is are honing in and expanding our intuitive abilities to observe and pick up that critical movement? And the other question is, um, how is your work related to the work of uh, appreciative inquiry, Cooper writers? Yeah. So, you know, the intuitive stuff is, is hard to hard to get at, but um, so here, here's, here's just one, um, one thing I think is important to, to, uh, to point out. Um, when we talk about changing or creating a new context, and we, we use that word create, could you create it? You know, you actually create the new context. We're not suggesting that that's the appropriate thing to do all the time. So I'll give you an extreme example. If somebody's beating somebody up out in the parking lot, you intervene in that particular content and stop it. You don't sort of say, oh, I'm going to create a new context so that beating people up is, is okay. You don't do that. But there's so much of the stuff we're dealing with which we don't have a lot of say over, like NIH funding like decreasing reimbursement, like the shift to risk-based payments, right? All, we don't have any say over that. And I'm not saying it's wrong. You guys get that? I mean, these are things that are being driven by forces far beyond us that reflect the, you know, the views of really important stakeholders, including patients, that the healthcare system has to work better. It doesn't work as well. It's too expensive, and there's a lot of waste. So 
you know, the, the, the example I sometimes used was uh, two, three years ago when we went live with the electronic health record here. You guys remember that? It almost killed us. <laughs> I mean, it was a near-death experience. And, and it was a lot to throw the switch entirely at once. But part of the reason that it was so difficult um, and people dealt with it in the usual ways. They pushed back, you can't do this, it's wrong, let's go back to the old way. But the decision was made that we were going to implement the inner, the, inner, the, inner, the electronic health record. Part of the reason it was difficult is because people didn't know how or chose not to create a new context. And the new context could have been something like, okay, I know this is a pain in the ass. I know I'd rather have paper charts. Um, I, in, I'm not that comfortable typing orders on a computer, and, and uh, um, but I'm gonna be cause in the matter and take it on. You know, physicians in particular had trouble with not not that that wouldn't happen all over the world. So that's um, now on on the intuitive side. Um, I'm not sure what your question is, but you know, are some people more intuitive than others in grasping this? Um, I suspect so, but everybody can everybody can learn it, but they have to choose to learn it. They have to choose. You know, what we tell you when you come in the course in the summer is, in the first five minutes, we say, look. This course will be more powerful for you if you'll, you know, park whatever stuff you bring with you out here. Suspend judgment for a little while, you know. Um, and then at the end of the course, if you say this doesn't work for me, fine. But you know, you've, you know, you've got to loosen up the handcuffs of your inherited investments and assumptions and beliefs. Uh, because those things get in your way. They get in all of our way. They get in my way all the time. Pardon me? Okay, thank you. So thank you. Tim will be here for about 10 more minutes if you want to have sort of an offline conversation with him. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you again, Tim. Yeah, you're welcome.